But friends, we get a sense of a person's priorities through their personal prayers. People pray for what they think is most important. Prayers for health, family, and even perhaps country are often atop our prayer list because, after all, they are what are most important to us. We pray for what we care about. A number of years ago, John Stott, a pastor in England, was traveling. He was on holiday, he was on vacation, and he happened upon a, a small village church. The preacher was on holiday himself, was perhaps the associate pastor preaching, and he listened in on their prayers as they began to pray. They prayed for things like the health of the sick, and they prayed for all those members. Boy, they wish they were there, but couldn't quite make it that day. And Stott concluded that they must be a village church that had a village God. Because they prayed for small things. They prayed for things that were important to them, but perhaps things that weren't quite eternal. We pray for what's most important to us. And if that principle is true, I want to apply that principle this morning to the Lord Jesus. If we look at the prayers of Jesus, they must have been things that were important to Jesus. More than that, John himself, the apostle who wrote this gospel, spends an entire chapter on a prayer. The longest prayer of Jesus recorded in all of the four gospels. It must have been important. The fact that the Holy Spirit would inspire John to remember word for word what his Lord and Savior prayed that night, the night before he would die for our sins. What is often called the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 is a prayer that Jesus prays on the final hours. It's the, the last recorded lengthy teaching. Jesus has just finished the upper room discourse. Stretching from John chapter 17 all the way through John chapter 16. Lengthy teaching, deep teaching, abiding teaching that, that even impacts the way we gather today and do church. And Jesus concludes this teaching. Now they've made their way into the Garden of Gethsemane. Where Jesus will be betrayed by Judas and arrested, ultimately tried and found guilty and sentenced to death. In these final hours of his earthly ministry, Jesus finds the time to pray, not only for himself and for his disciples, but as we'll see this morning, to pray for you and to pray for me. So this morning, I invite you to turn to John chapter 17. And we're going to consider this morning this, this whole chapter. It's exciting to be back in John. It's been some time. Lord willing, we're going to spend the next couple of weeks finishing this, this wonderful book up. So please read ahead. Spend time in John. Think about what God is doing through his word. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you have given them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction." that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, And love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Well, as we consider this prayer, Jesus here prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. 
and he prays for those whom his disciples will lead to faith in him. Jesus prays that the Father would be glorified, that the disciples would be protected in their mission, and that the people of God would be unified by their love for one another. So the purpose of this text and the purpose of our time and our thinking this morning is to exhort us to follow Jesus by praying these, things, these same things. I think Jesus here in John 17 not only gives us what to pray, but how to pray. He gives us the content of our prayers. If Jesus found these matters important, well, why not us? Namely, the glory of God, the protection of the saints, and the unity among the church. And so this morning, I want us to, co- to consider these three points. First, in verses 1 through, through 5, chapter 17, 1 through 5, that you ought to pray that Christ is glorified. That Christ is glorified. We're going to think, what does it mean that Christ is glorified? Why should we pray that? Why, why was Jesus praying that? Secondly, we see in verses 6 through 19 that you ought to pray that Christians are protected while on mission. We're going to think about what it means to be sanctified, set apart for a mission that God has given us. And third and finally, in verses 20 through 26, you ought to pray that the church remains unified. When's the last time you prayed, God, unify this church? Consider the important implications of a unified church in the life of God's people. Well, first here in verses 1 through 5, Jesus Christ prays that he would be glorified. In other words, he prays for himself. Nothing wrong for praying for yourself. Jesus here, moments before his arrest, moments before his trial, moments before his execution, he says, Father, the hour has come. Look with me here at verse 1. We're told that Jesus, after concluding his upper room discourse, began to pray and opened his prayer in this way, Father, the hour has come. All the way back to the beginning of John's gospel, that phrase, the hour, has been used as a reference to the cross. In Cana, in Galilee, when Jesus' mother says to him, son, I want you to turn water into wine, Jesus responds, woman, my hour has not yet come. It's not time. In other words, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus makes clear that his ministry, which was often physical in nature, pointed to a greater ministry that would take place on the cross. In other words, that Jesus Christ didn't come just to meet physical need, but to meet our greatest spiritual need. And so this morning we see that Jesus here, by saying that his hour has come, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, teaches us a theological truth that the gospel is the central point in God's redemptive plan, in God's redemptive history. 
that all that God had been doing up to this point, all of God's activity in historical past, all the work that God had done through Adam and Eve and through Noah and Abram and the nation of Israel, through King David and Solomon and and the prophets was all pointing to this moment in time that is about to take place. That, that God is glorified in Jesus Christ and Him alone. This is Jesus' point in praying. That through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God would be glorified. That this message, the gospel, that, that God had sent His Son into the world to die for sinners. To die the death. That you and I deserve. That Jesus Christ had come and and His whole purpose was to reveal the Father's glory by dying the death that sinners deserve. That God would be glorified through judgment. Friends, this is a message that is counter-cultural. It's counter every culture. Not just the current cultural climate. But that an eternal divine God would be glorified, that, that is praised, honored, through judgment is absurd. How have you heard it expressed? Oh, God is glorified through acceptance. God is glorified because He's a God of love and compassion. He's like my grandfather. He always gives me a warm hug when I do something wrong. Friends, if this is your view of God, this is simply not the view of God in the Bible. Our God is a holy God. Our God is a a just God. These words like glory are words of majesty and power and sovereignty. In essence, the word glory means the sum total of all of God's attributes displayed in wonder and power. Yes, God is a God of love and compassion and mercy. Get this straight. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't sweep your sin or my sin under the rug. You really realize what would happen? If your sin was just swept under the rug. If you think Jesus is just sweeping your sins under the rug. If you think God's just like, you know what? You're all right. It's okay. I understand. We all make mistakes. It's all right. Doesn't that nullify what Jesus is about to do on the cross? Why is Jesus hanging on a cross if our sin is so easy just to sweep away? No, God deals with it. And why God is glorified, as Paul will say in Romans chapter 3, that he is both the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Christ prays that he is glorified through the cross. And our prayer this morning is that Jesus is lifted big, not through program, not through gimmick, not through word, but through gospel power. Friends, there is nothing on this earth more glorious to Jesus than a sinner become a saint. Nothing. Nothing more miraculous. Nothing more powerful. You know, isn't it funny how often we pray for miraculous things? There's nothing wrong. I mean, so I don't want to be beating you down here this morning. Uh, but we do pray for a miracle. I mean, I just pray, Lord, heal our sister's arm. It worked, right? I believe that God is a God who heals, all right? But that is not as miraculous as a spiritually dead person coming back to life. 
There is nothing that this world can repeat. There is nothing more glorious, more wondrous than a bunch of corpses coming out of a grave at the call of one man. It's the power of the gospel. Jesus goes on in his prayer to say that he would be glorified through this eternal life that he would give through the gospel. You see, the gospel leads to life where death is deserved. Notice what he says. Verse 2, since you have given him, that is Jesus, the Son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. How is Jesus glorified? How is God glorified? Through knowing him and the eternal life that he gives. Look what he says. What is eternal life? Is eternal life living in the clouds with harps? Is eternal life you sitting on a beach drinking pina coladas in heaven? What is eternal life, he says? Eternal life is knowing God. Knowing God. This is our chief end as believers. To know God. And to know God more is to glorify God. You know, so often we want to, man, how can I serve Jesus? How can I, how can I glorify Jesus? How can I live for Jesus? By knowing him more. And Jesus ain't writing signs to you in the sky. You know him, as you'll see in just a moment, through his word. You know him through his people. This is how we know Eternal life. Eternal life is given to us through knowledge. It's it's not some sort of emotional activity where we're drawn emotionally to Jesus. Man, I really want me some Jesus. But it is a transforming mind. It's a mind that says this world is broken. And Jesus has created a new world. Where life is. It's the reality check that... Me living life my own way leads to death. That I have been deceived by the evil one to think that I'm actually living my best life. Like that, that, that sin is somehow good. Sin always leaves a bitter taste in your mouth, doesn't it? Always does. Those thoughts of envy, lust. Greed, immorality, they all taste good, but they leave bitterness in our mouth. And Jesus says, I've got something better. I've got water flowing to eternal life. And it's through knowing me and knowing the eternal God who sent me. Jesus continues his prayer and he says that he is glorified through a completed mission. Look there in verse four. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What was Jesus' mission? Again, I I, I said earlier, Jesus' mission wasn't just to feed a bunch of folks and and heal a bunch of folks. Those were foretastes. Those were like little appetizers of the world to come. That's all that was. That was all Jesus pushing against the fallenness of this world. That was Jesus declaring that the King of kings and the Lord of lords is here. Let me show you what it looks like. 
It was Jesus demonstrating his authority and glorifying his father through his completed mission on the cross. You'll hear it often say that we ought to live a cross-centered life or we ought to live Christ-centered or or Christ-centered preaching or Christ-centered this or Christ-centered that. Right? They become kind of mantras and we forget that's what Jesus' point was. That everything points to the cross. I grew up in church. I went to Sunday school every Sunday. I mean, from the moment of birth. I don't remember it, but I was there, I'm sure. Puking all over the pews and doing that. and I was there. But, but, but the gospel was something that was in the back seat. It was something that you did one time and you got over. And then you got into knowing all these facts about the Bible. And, you know, you, you could quote when Moses did what he did and how he did it. And you could quote who David was. And, and it was all about just rote knowledge. It wasn't about knowing God. It was about knowing about God. And Jesus here in this particular text is praying that God would be glorified through the cross. And a reminder to us this morning that Jesus' cross is not something that we get over. It is something that intersects every aspect of your daily life. From how you spend your money to how you spend your time and who you spend your time with. To the things you consume in your mouth and in your eyes. The gospel of Jesus Christ has everything to do with with how you think about the world around you. The way you watch the news and think about current events. The way you talk to others and and the way you think and pray about others. The gospel changes everything Every day. Friends, when's the last time you thought about the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ's mission? And pray that you would know, Father, help me know it better. Help me get a better sense of Jesus and his gospel. He concludes this section of praying for himself with verse 5. He prays that he is glorified with eternal glory. We don't have time to deal, deep, go like deep dive into verse 5, but, but just look at it on its face value. And now he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is the eternal Lagos, the eternal word. Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. But Jesus' life didn't begin in Bethlehem. He is the eternal Son of God. And Jesus is saying, when I finish this mission, I want the glory that I had before. Paul gives us this glimpse into this glory in Ephesians chapter 2. When he said, or Ephesians uh, chapter 1. When he says that Jesus there is sitting on the throne. Above every name that is every name. Not only now, but also in the life to come. That he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That he is the glorified one. Friends, the point is this. That our prayer life has to begin with Jesus. Lest it begin with us. How often do our prayers focus more on us getting glory than Jesus? 
How often do we care more about our needs rather than seeing Jesus' mission completed on earth as it is in heaven? Let us not grow weary or discouraged. Let us us aim, rather, as genuine Christians in the glory of Jesus Christ. Let us see that our lives matter for the glory of Christ. Friends, this is why it's so scandalous when Christians fall. This is why the enemy is coming after you. Because if he can scandalize the name of Jesus, he can somehow rob Christ of his glory. And your life and my life is integral to glorifying Jesus, making Jesus big on earth as it is in heaven. Not only that, we see in this that Jesus goes on in verses 6 through 19 to pray that Christians are protected. Perhaps one of the most well-known parts of this particular prayer is Jesus' prayer for his disciples, that they would be sanctified. That they would be sanctified. Well, as he begins to pray for them, he affirms them first in verses 6 through 10. He gives them a sense of affirmation. He says, Father, they did it. They accepted your word. Jesus here mingles together two really deep theological truths, which is God's sovereignty in salvation and human responsibility. He says to them, listen, verse 6, I have manifested, I've revealed, I have made known your name to the people, notice what he says, whom you gave me out of the world. God's sovereign election. God has sovereignly chosen these disciples He didn't choose Steve. He he didn't choose Joe. He chose these dudes to take the message to the nations. More than that, we know the fuller teaching of the New Testament and the whole Bible teaches that is how God works. He is calling a people out of the mass of humanity to save for his glory. God is sovereign in his power and in his salvation. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for you have given them the words that you gave me. Notice what he says, verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. You know, a lot of times you'll hear preachers, you'll hear teachers, boy, they'll be super heavy on election. They'll be super heavy on predestination. They'll be super heavy on God saves sovereignly. And friends, I affirm that 1,000%. I don't think we can do a lick to save ourselves. I don't think we would choose Jesus if we had the choice. Apart from the supernatural power of the Spirit. But notice what Jesus says. That they received, that they believed. There is human responsibility. And, and Jesus here is affirming both God's sovereign election of these and their belief and obedience. That they believed. And so Jesus here is affirming what is a genuine Christian and what isn't. We've talked about this, and, and Jesus is just sort of rounding out what we've already talked about. How do we know what a Christian is? 
Well, it's one who's been sovereignly chosen by God and one who's repented of their sins and trusted in Christ and whom bears the fruit of obedience. We don't know whom God has sovereignly chosen. The message goes to all. How do we know if they're genuinely saved? Because they obey Jesus. You see, faith and obedience are marks of those genuine believers. Well, as Jesus affirms them, affirms that which is genuine over against that which is false, he prays that they would be protected while on their mission. In the immediate context, Jesus is about to send these 11 guys. There was 12, one deserted. There's 11. These 11 guys are going to go out and transform the world. He's going to send them the Greek word apostle, sent ones. They will be sent on a mission. And he prays in verses 11 through 16, so if you have your eyes there, that they would be protected from a number of things. He prays first in verse 11 that they would be protected against disunity. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. So Jesus here just says, hey, listen, here's the deal. They're going to be left behind. Ah. We thought that was a bad thing. Um, they're going to be left behind. You'll get that later when you go home and you see that book on your shelf. Anyways. Um, they, 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 were, they were going to be left behind. Jesus is going back to the Father. And he says, listen, here is something I know is going to happen. And that is going to be disunity. In John chapter 21, that's what happens. But he prays, Father, unify them. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus here prays against their disunity. He prays that they would be unified even as, notice the standard, as the Father and the Son are one. This is it's amazing that the disciples would know the unity of the Godhead, that they would experience the same unity that the Father and the Son have. That the same intimacy that they enjoyed together, they themselves would have through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. More than that, he prays against disloyalty. That they would be loyal. He goes on to speak about the son of destruction. Judas who would desert. He, he prays that they, would, that they would be guarded against desertion. When you're on a mission. In the midst of a fight. In the midst of difficulty. It's tempting to want to quit. It's tempting to desert. It's tempting to say, hey, man, I'm just going to go home. I don't need this. Why am I on the front lines? Jesus here is asking that the Father would guard them. More than that, we see in verses 13 through 14 uh, that Jesus prays from protection from worldliness. He says, I'm coming to you and I'm speaking them that their joy would be fulfilled, that, that they would have my joy. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, you see that the world 
presents to us a competing joy. One of the great schemes of this fallen world, the schemes of the evil one, is to try to get us to be satisfied in something apart from God. Turn anywhere you want to turn, and it's there. Appetites for things in this world. To try to satisfy that which only God can satisfy. And Jesus here is praying that the disciples would be guarded against such lust and desire for the things of this world. And he reminds them, remember, the disciples can hear. They got ears, right? This isn't like some private prayer that Jesus is praying. He's praying out loud that... Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. In other words, Jesus is saying, Father, remind them this ain't home. This isn't your home. John will deal with this at greater length and lengths in 1 John, where he seeks to teach against worldliness. For you and I, we need to fight against this as well. Fight against the sort of sirens of, our, of this life. Trying to lull us into finding satisfaction and joy here and now. Well, Jesus continues to pray that they would be protected not only from disunity and disloyalty and worldliness, but in verses 15 and 16, that they would be protected from the evil one. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, some scholars argue that he's just talking about evil versus the evil one. Either way you, you go with it, the idea is evil. Keeping them from evil. Keeping them from the one who is seeking to derail their faith and d- discard the gospel. Friend, the question for us this morning is, do we need prayer here? Well, when's the last time you began your morning by saying, Father, keep me from evil? Keep me from evil today. Because left to myself, I want it. The way the Apostle Paul says it is, I do what I don't want to do. Lord, who will free me? That's our prayer. Is that we will be protected. From the evil one. Well, I've been alluding each time that they be protected from a mission that they're on. And Jesus concludes this section by praying that they would be sanctified. So in verse 17, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, in the Bible, it, sanctification is often used in, re, re, in regards to Sort of a Pauline sanctification, a progressive sanctification, a a progressive made holy sense. But sanctification doesn't merely mean being made holy, uh, but more in a broader sense, it means to be set apart for a holy purpose. So in the Old Testament, items in the temple were sanctified. They were set apart as holy. Kind of like that china that's like in that cabinet in your dining room. 
You get it out only for Thanksgiving or Christmas. Like it just sits there on the shelf, getting dust all the other months and days out of the year. And you get it out and you clean it up and only you can wash it because you don't want anybody to break it. It's set apart. It's, it's holy in your sense. Jesus here is praying that his disciples would be set apart for a mission. The mission being the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus prays here that they would be set apart for something else. For a special mission. To glorify the Son through the gospel. And you and I have been set apart on this mission. But notice what sets us apart. Notice how we are set apart. Look there at verse 17 again. By the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ, this message that we see here in the scriptures, is what calls us out, sets us apart. We don't get a phone call from God. We don't get some impression from touching some tree. Whatever else crazy things this world teaches us. God speaks through his word. That's it. He doesn't speak through prophets. People might prophesy all kinds of crazy things in this world. He speaks through these prophets contained in these words. God sets us apart by the truth. That we are sinners and saved by the grace of God alone. By faith alone in Christ alone been set apart and sent on a mission. Why did God set us apart? Why did God set these disciples apart? For a mission. A mission to see men and women saved by the saving work of Christ, by that saving message of the gospel. Notice here at verse 19, and for their sake I consecrate myself. The same Word that John uses for sanctifies the same word used here to consecrate, to set apart, that they may be sanctified in the truth. Friend, you are no more like Jesus than when you are living on mission for Jesus. You are no more like Jesus than when the singular purpose of your day from sunup to sundown is the mission of Jesus. Is the glory of Jesus. Is making Jesus known. In your life. And the lives of people around you. That was Jesus' mission. That's what Jesus did. Sure did Jesus enjoy other things. Perhaps. Is it wrong to enjoy other things in this world? Not at all. But we must not get off the center. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be the central point in all of our conversations, in all of our thinking, in all of our actions. The gospel and Jesus' glory. We have been set apart by Jesus for a particular mission. To make him known where he is unknown. And that doesn't mean only to the furthest unreached people groups in this world. That may mean your neighbor. That may mean your spouse. That may mean your kids making Jesus known where he's unknown. Well, Jesus concludes his prayer in verses 20 through 26 by praying for future disciples. And this point we want to take away from this is that we ought to pray 
that the church remains unified. The central point of this particular aspect is that the church remain unified. He's already alluded to it. He wanted the disciples to remain, but he wants, to, wants the, the whole church to be unified. A unified in Christ. Look there what he writes. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Again, I just want to mention the transmission of the gospel is through the preaching of Christ. This is how the message goes. It doesn't mean preachers on a stage. It means you got to open your mouth, friend. You got to start opening your mouth. People don't come to faith in Christ if you don't tell them about Jesus Christ. It's through their word, he says. And so Jesus prays that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays for a, a divine unity among the saints. That we participate and reflect the unity of the Godhead through our corporate unity with one another. One of the most scandalous aspects of local church ministry is the divisiveness that is so often found within her walls. There is nothing, as we'll see, more detrimental to evangelism than division. One of the roles that I have outside of preaching and pastoring this wonderful church is to talk to pastors and church leaders across North America every week. And I have phone calls and emails with churches and, and these pastors. And, you know, I could almost tell them the story before they told me the story. Oh, we were a church that was started in the 19XXX. And boy, we had a great ministry. And we used to bus kids in here. And we used to do great things. And go so on and so forth and so on and so forth. But then now we haven't baptized anyone in 10 years. And, and we just can't seem to get along. And we just can't seem to get things in order. And we, 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 we. And every one of these stories has a central theme to it because every one of those stories are devoid of one thing and that is unity among the people of God. And I could pinpoint if I, and through conversation and ask, where did the church begin to divide? When did the church begin to divide? And, and, and it's when they got off the gospel. When the gospel was not as important as reaching people when the gospel was no longer central in the life of God's people, then they begin to divide and begin to fight over stupid things like colors of walls and colors of carpet and, and whether or not so-and-so was going to use what Sunday school class. Or... Do you really think Jesus is honored in those things? We really think Jesus is glorified in those kind of conversations. Friends, what we need to have, what we want to strive for, what we want to cultivate among the members of Catonsville Baptist Church is a deep and abiding and immense responsibility and privilege to display the divine unity of the Godhead through our mutual love for one another. Do you want this world to see what Jesus looks? Do you want this world to see God? Well, it happens through a unified church. 
Unified not around a preacher, not around pastors, not around programs. Unified around a central message and that being the gospel of Jesus Christ. That when people come, all, my gosh, they won't shut up about that Jesus guy. That's all they want to talk about. That's the hope. Friend, do you doubt the importance of things like church membership? Do you doubt the importance of things like the regular gathering of God's people on the Lord's Day? Friends, these are the places where we display divine unity. We're not all a X church and all a Y church. We're not all a this church and a that church. Friends, when we start talking like that, we are in trouble. When we start becoming more identified with our perhaps politics or our economic spending patterns or, or our views about what this or that should be apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and his glorious gospel, friends, we're in trouble. We want to fight against that. Like likes like, all right? Like, that's just the way it is. People that like football, they like other people that like football. People who, I think everybody likes to talk about the weather, though. I don't know what that is. Uh, you're funny, like, are we always talking about the weather? Um, there are other things to talk about than the weather? I mean, how boring. But, right, like likes like. And the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't gather like people together. He, I mean, he gathers together unlike people, people from different backgrounds, from different parts of the world for his glory. And there's nothing more glorious than that, friends. And let me say this. You are in the particular place you are right now by God's sovereign choice. Centered around the people you are around, the people whom I'll never know. But you know them. And friend, do you understand that you have been sent on a mission by God to tell them about Jesus? That we are at a divine moment for a particular purpose so that people would come to know the saving knowledge that we all enjoy? Sadly, this pandemic has divided the saints more than it has unified the saints. We've been tempted to play into the hands of this world, dividing over silly things like masks and social distancing and vaccines. Like we, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, need to lay aside some of these things and become unified for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Trusting one another more than doubting. Believing in one another. Supporting one another. Friend, do you care more about being right than you do about loving someone else? Look, if you just want to be right all the time, your work, people will be repelled by you all the time. But if, but if you're willing to be, to be wrong, if you're willing to lay it aside, and I'm not saying communicating error, right? We're unified, as we'll see in just a second, Around the truth. 
Again and again in this section, Jesus has said, words. I gave him your word. They've kept your word. Verse 8, I've given them your words. They came to know in truth. Glorify them in the truth. Sanctify them in the, in the truth. Your word is truth. What unifies the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the truth, not error. What unifies us is the truth. What we need to be centered on is the truth about the gospel. Friends, you can see the enemy picking off church after church because they, they leave the truth behind. And what we want to remain centered on is the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to see for the sake of evangelism. Notice what he writes there in verse 21. That they also may be in us so that, purpose clause, the world may believe that you have sent me. And again, look with me again, verse 23. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So that, another purpose statement, that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. You know, in those conversations with churches, you know what the number one question is. How do I reach my neighborhood? How do I reach my community? How do I reach the people around this church? Should we do a block party? Not a bad idea. Do we pass out flyers? Okay, not bad. Do we uh, do vacation Bible school? What do we do? How do we reach? How do we reach our community? Well, friends, all of those things you could use. And a whole host of other things. But if you don't do this thing, all those other things will be for nothing. What does Jesus say? How does the world get to know us? How does the world get to know the gospel? Well, what does he say? So that they may believe that you have sent me. Through what? So that what? Through the unity that we display. Jesus said it back in chapter 13. That the world may know that you are my disciples through what? Your love for one another. It's that simple. But it's that hard. Unity is like a magnet that attracts. And disunity repels. And nothing repels sinners more than a people who hate each other. And can't stand to get away from each other. The world doesn't need that. They have that every day in their own homes. Why would they want to come to a church and have that? Friends, the next time you're tempted to disunity, remember that disunity is a tool in the enemy's hand to send people to hell rather than heaven. Final point. Unity is the theme of this final section. And Jesus ends his prayer by praying for the great reunion in the sky. Jesus is leaving his disciples. He's left up. Jesus isn't here this morning. His spirit is with us. And Jesus concludes his prayer. Friend, if you want someone to camp out today, if you want someone to have your mind just filled with some wonder and some glory, Jesus prays for the great reunion and glory. He says, Father, verse 24, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with 
me where I am. To see the, my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Oh, Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know you. I've made them known your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus concludes by praying that we would experience Jesus' eternal glory, to know the love of the Father and the Son. You know, so often we ask this question, what's heaven going to be like? It's the wrong question. Frankly, those questions and the way those questions are answered are so materialistic, it makes you want to throw up in your mouth. Our desires for bigger and better here on earth just get projected up into heaven. Man, I just want a big house. Or, ah, man, I just want to do this. Or, man, I just want to have this. Just sad glimpse. Not a very glorious. What's heaven like? Not the question. It's insufficient. For what we know is sufficient. Here's the truth. Friend, you don't need to know what heaven's like. You need to know this one single truth. You'll be with Jesus. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. What's the carpet? I don't know. What's the streets? I don't know. What's the houses look like? I don't know. What does it mean that the sun never shines and there's no moon? I don't know. But I'll be with Jesus and that's okay. Friends, as Christians, the goal is not merely to keep the peace, but to embody the unity revealed through the Godhead. Unity through diversity is the aim of the Lord, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to aim towards love, an eternal love, a reunifying love, a love that you and I will enjoy for all of glory. In other words, what we experience in this body is to be a foretaste of the heavenly glory we will all experience in heaven. Jesus prays that, his, that the Father and the Son be glorified. He, he prays that we would be protected and that we would be unified. Brothers and sisters, let us now not only pray for the glory of Christ, but seek to share the, the message, tell the world that Jesus has come and died for our sins, for their sins, and that their joy can be fulfilled, the joy of Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us have eyes uplifted to the glory that we all will enjoy. Let that be what drives us. To live Christ-centered life today, this week, and the years to come. Let's pray. Father, we pray Christ be glorified. That we be protected on this mission. And that this church would be unified in love for the sake of the gospel message. Your glory and our eternal good we pray in Christ's name. Amen.